I'm Leora. I'm Shania. And this is the Expanding Economics Podcast. This is part two of a two-episode series on the failure of economics to center human welfare. If you have not listened to that episode, I would highly recommend pausing this one for now to go back and listen to part one first. As seen in the previous episode, mainstream economic theory does not adequately account for social inequality. In this episode, we will see how it also endogenizes racism through gaps in its assumptions, resulting in discriminatory outcomes which permeate through society. Many political movements are rooted in economic inequality. However, economics itself regards racial disparities and economic outcomes as anomalous or exogenous. This assumption, which is foundational to economics, assumes racial differences to be a natural order. Placing this phenomenon beyond human control ultimately renders racially founded economic disparities unsolvable. It is crucial to understand that even though economics is a social science, it's not really inclusive of marginalized communities, which in turn naturalizes discrimination. To fight against anti-Black racism, we must understand how these assumptions are embedded in our economic and social fabric. In this episode, we speak with Joel Gamble, who is a principal on the Reimagining Capitalism team at Umidyar Network an impact investing firm that focuses on attacking fundamental issues of neoliberal ideologies and unequal power dynamics in the U.S. and global economy, hence shaping a new economic paradigm by trying to reimagine how the economy should look. Without further ado, let's start the show. Much of economic theory, such as utility maximization, doesn't account for people living on the margins. In what way does mainstream economics not prioritize people's lives, and how does it become inherently racist? Yes, there are so many assumptions that the kind of economics we're taught in school makes that permeates these ways in which policymakers make decisions, the way business leaders make decisions, the way we talk about how the economy works, even in like popular discourse, and, and all in all, it, it still upholds these racist systems. And I think that the term system is important because I think it's really easy when you talk about racism for folks to just assume you're talking about one individual doing something that someone would call racist. Instead, we're talking about this way of thinking that leads to disparate outcomes by racial identity and centers one racial group a dominant racial group over others. Um, I think utility maximization is a, is a great example. I remember my undergrad econ classes um, learning about, you know, utility functions and just being confused. I was like, this doesn't describe my life. Um, there's not some basket of goods in which I have some inherent set of preferences, you know, that are monotonic, you know, increasing in, in value based off a certain set of baskets of goods, and there's no crossing between those utility curves, just all of these things that felt 
really divorced by how I experienced life. And I think there's a lot of assumptions that are made even in how we think about utility theory. One, that you know you can't compare utility functions. And then two, you have to ask yourself, we're making all these positive assumptions about what is and is not good for the economy, but there's there's normativity there. There's an assumption that's being made about what is and is not good. Even think about how this translates into how we think about government policies, how we think about public welfare. There's this welfare function, but we never ask ourselves, you know, is this the right welfare function? We only ask ourselves, what are the policies that help us maximize this function? And that's not quite the right the right way to look at it if you're actually trying to think about things beyond utility that affect how people make decisions. Um, and so, you know, an assumption that I think is really important that folks make in mainstream economics about racism is that racism is somehow irrational. When people are acting in a perfectly rational manner, you know, we'll, we'll get rid of racism because it's illogical. It's, ir- it's irrational to discriminate. But theory of economics um, called stratification economics actually rejects this. And I think it's really important for folks who are interested in economics to think this way. It's the idea that actually protecting group interests um, based around identity actually may be rational, that people make decisions based off of what's good for their identity group rather than just thinking about what's most efficient for the economy overall. And so yeah. I think that that's an important assumption to, to think about when thinking about whether or not mainstream economics is actually helping us be anti-racist or actually perpetuating racist systems. So when we talk about these assumptions in utility and welfare maximization, how does that directly translate to economics upholding racist systems? Yes, absolutely. I think one way to think about how it can directly um, translate to upholding racist systems is, you know, we assume in a lot of those models that the aggregate of all this individual behavior leads to a whole that is inherently optimal. Um, and that's not always true. Like even, even just simply disaggregating, for instance, GDP data or disaggregating unemployment data in the US shows that there are disparate outcomes where if we were just looking at, okay, well, what's the, what's the way, best way to minimize unemployment, right, overall? Mm-hmm. You can end up with a lower unemployment rate and a higher unemployment rate or unchanged unemployment rate for African Americans because your function is just not accounting or disparate outcomes um, by racial groups that are actually upheld by the ways in which government has or has not invested in particular communities, historical government policies like in the U.S., like redlining, or the ways in which our social safety net was actually built to exclude professions that were historically held by Black and Latino folks. So there's there's ways in which you're just missing, you know, a fuller picture of how the economy works when you're relying on these Uh, functions that are presumed to be positive, but actually make normative assumptions. So where did this problem start at the roots? How did the process of the way that the economy was theorized, defined, and conceptualized, how did that process play a role in its development into a racial system? Yes, I think there are, I think economic historians are are really great at, and really important um, for this conversation because I think the way we think about economics today, we assume that it's its objective science closer to physics than to sociology or political science, which is not true. Mm -hmm. Um, That was always this way. When how people view economics as the profession has actually changed dramatically over time, we weren't always using the models we are using today. And there actually used to be a stronger role for history and political economy and how economics works. I think part of it is the profession, right? And, and its desire to become more 
like a hard science, uh, we've tended towards an over-reliance on models, elegance in those models and simplification in those models, which is something you do see a lot of in physics, that the simplest model is, is highly valued in this pursuit of a theory of everything. And that can lead to making a lot of assumptions in what you even study empirically. And that wasn't always the case. There was much more of a role for politics and explicit role for politics in history and how people made recommendations in the economics profession. I would also say over time, economists have actually had a larger role in government, but the role that that economists have been, I don't want to say relegated to, they have a lot of power, but the role that economists play in government has also been one that's about coming up with solutions to pre-asked questions, if that makes sense. So when Mm -hmm. I was talking about social welfare functions, the assumption here is like, okay, this debt to GDP ratio is correct, or this is, we're looking for some optimal level of taxation. Economists, you know, figure it out versus a more political economy approach that harkens back to, you know, the role that Keynes played, for instance, in government. And so I think that that's important to think about in terms of how economists' role has uh, evolved over time. And Benjamin Applebaum has a great book about this called The Economist Hour that traces, you know, the role economists used to play in government to the roles that they play now. Recognizing that in every era between the early 20th century and now, it's been political, but in some ways, we've just avoided talking about how political it is and have decided to call it objective, even when it's not. Um, and then on the the roots of racial inequity, <laughs> I mean, we have to go back to, at least from the U.S. perspective, which is where I sit, um, one of the major sources of wealth in the U.S. economy is slave labor since 1619 in the United States. And I think it's important to think about wealth, not just as an accumulation of savings, as like our mainstream courses will tell us, but instead as essentially like the state sanctioned rights to future resources, future income. And this is really helpful when we're thinking about slave labor, for instance, you know, it wasn't just that having a certain number of slaves made you wealthy, but what you were actually gaining was the rights to that, the, the resources and the output that those slaves produced. And that's, I think that's important when we're talking about wealth because that's inherently talking about power and power that's backed up by the government, not some um, separate self-sustaining system, you know, with impartial rules. And, and I think that that's where a lot of the, the roots of racial inequity in the United States come from is that the government decided who was chattel and who was not and who had rights to other people's labor and who did not. And that was along a group identity. As you mentioned before, economic theory focuses on objective outcomes and individual choices, and it's sort of separated and less integrated with policymaking and political institutions. Could you elaborate more on the consequences of this? Yes, happy to. Um, I think when we're taught, to, like economics is a study of, of behavior, um, but it has too much of a focus on this idea of the hyper-rational individual. And so when we study, for instance, someone's preferences, when we're looking at their utility function, the assumption is that they have some objective set of preferences that are just purely from their rational existence and uh, that it's our job to figure out what that is and understand how it interacts with markets or with tax policy, et cetera. When in reality, you know, the institutions around us, culture affects how we behave 
culture affects our preferences. Again, going back to stratification economics, group identity affects our preferences. You know, a lot of folks in the US when Donald Trump was elected, they were trying to figure out, well, why would someone vote for him who is a lower income white American when everything about his background suggests that he would not implement policies that would affect them. But we forget that like this person is not operating off of just some something innate to them as an individual who lives in, let's say, North Carolina and has some preferences over what they would buy at the grocery store, what kind of house they want to live in, et cetera, how many kids they want to have. Um, group identity as a white person living in North Carolina um, also affects it. There's a belief that if white people do better, <laughs> this is why dog whistles work, then they'll do better, right? And that's where also economic history plays an important role because I think it's Nancy Eisenberg has this great book called White Trash, which studies the history of the white identity in the United States. Mm -hmm. And there was a different fissure between poor working blacks and poor working whites that was intentionally made by white Southerners to prioritize white interests over black interests. Um, economist Derek Hamilton calls it the property rights of whiteness in which proximity to blackness was seen as economically harmful. And that's something that happened historically that still affects how people think about their own economic positioning today. So it's not just a, someone is born and they have these preferences and then they express them, you know, and we can get to some rational, optimal outcome. Instead, institutions, history, the way society is structured, culture and, and beliefs about identity groups all affect those preferences. During the Black Lives Matter movement, a lot of the media and the news has focused on the destruction of buildings, statues and stores. And it's very evident that there's a prioritization of property and condemnation of looting over black lives. How did we get to a point where we prioritize the economy over human welfare during movements like these? Yes, that is an excellent question. <laughs> it's a difficult one. Um, I think there's so many different approaches one could take because there's so many different ways, reasons that we're at this point. I think one, one reason is going back to how I think we define wealth. I think we should define wealth as state sanctioned rights over future output and resources, right? That the government itself exists at this point in time to protect those rights to future outputs and resources. And that is actually fed back into by the current levels of inequality that we see today so that those with the most economic power and therefore the most concern over protecting that right to future resources, protecting their wealth, have a lot of political power. So political scientist Jacob Hacker at, at Yale University has done a really good job of tracking um, actually the increased political power of the wealthiest people in the United States with rising income inequality, right? So that income inequality actually exacerbates political power and political inequality. And because there's such a deep tie between economic power and political power, you can see a world in which government exists primarily protect those rights to future resources and output, private property, other sources of wealth, and will deprioritize you know, human welfare. So while we're on the subject of economic inequality and how our economy does not prioritize welfare, why is our economy unable to support black businesses? And what role does capitalism possibly have to play in this? Yes, I think this is a really important question in which I've been talking about things at the systemic level, which I think is important, but bias also plays a role. I work at a firm that used to do a lot of impact investing work. And there are a number of studies that show the disparate outcomes in VC 
for white startup entrepreneurs versus women versus black entrepreneurs. And you just see that straight up bias does play a role in that in which white entrepreneurs are more, much more likely to get startup capital. But on top of that bias, you know, if someone does make it to the stage where they're in front of a venture capitalist asking for capital, even before that, there's a systemic problem, right? The ways in which you can get capital to keep your business afloat is heavily reliant on your existing wealth. One, you know, if you have a good credit history as a good signifier of how much wealth your family has had before, job security, et cetera, it's both reflective of current labor market discrimination and past discrimination by race. On top of that, family wealth is what a lot of small business owners or, or relational wealth, so like your friends or so-and-so, to find capital when they can't always get it from the bank. And so then that's another way in which access to capital is still highly correlated with racial wealth gap and, and historical discrimination, et cetera, plays a big role in, in whether or not you can get a bank loan. And so then you still have this problem where if you did want to start a, a business and you were a black entrepreneur, it's just harder for you to get access to the capital itself. And so this important interplay between historical discrimination by group identity that is not rational still affects people's outcomes and ability to access capital today in a way that cannot easily just be solved by the injection of more capital into black businesses now because it's deeply rooted in like wealth inequality. In our previous episode, we spoke about the difference between capital and capitalism, where capital is created within the economy and capitalism is something that we socially uphold intentionally. How does capitalism prevent black businesses from having enough capital due to discrimination? One thing that comes to mind for me is capital is concentrated amongst a capital-owning class. And even though we see now that there's a strong correlation between high labor income and high levels of capital income, capital income itself is not distributed across the income distribution. There's still It's still concentrated in the hands of those with the most income overall. I do think that there's something important in that because when you're separating who is producing wealth and who is reaping the profits from wealth, you need a system by which to do it that feels just. And that's where identity discrimination, specifically racism, is important in constructing that paradigm, right? By which you can justify some folks having a lot and other folks not having as much. In the cases of chattel slavery, other folks just being the source of wealth through that racist system. Like you need some logic to justify a system of of inequality and a system in which some people are allowed to be capital holders and others are not. That would be how I would think about it. In the previous episode, we also spoke about endogenous shocks, where external social and environmental factors disrupt the economy. How does the economy allow for endogenous shocks, such as COVID, to disproportionately affect Black communities while disrupting the economy? There's a lot of folks who make the assumption that, okay, there are more Black Americans who are coming up with uh, cases of COVID. It must be something about Black people, right, that we are not wearing enough masks or not taking the proper precautions, which is not true. It's just a reflection of racial inequity in the United States, in which, for instance, most of, I think well over 50% of frontline workers, like essential workers in the United States are are workers of color, and Black workers are often overrepresented in those industries like home care work, for instance, or retail work. So we're just more exposed to COVID overall not a precaution thing. And then there's health inequities and health disparities by race 
in which if, if you're not getting access to preventative care, you're more likely to have problems down the road. If you don't have access to health insurance, then you're more likely to not have access to preventative care and you end up with problems down the road. And then there have been studies, I think John Oliver actually had a really good episode about this, where even then racial bias in how black women are treated for the same pain leads to like under treatment of, of black women. Both of this is a problem in maternal health and a number of other health issues. So then there's even the ways in which group identity perceives black pain also leads to poorer treatment for black for black folks in the United States. So there's, I think there's a, there's a number of factors that lead to that. Could you elaborate a bit more on how gaps in economic assumptions result in discrimination? Yes, I think, you know, we're taught that economics is a science with universal laws when we learn about economics, especially at the undergraduate level. And that's just not true. <laughs> Institutions and norms and policies all dramatically shape economic outcomes, and they actually set the rules for how the economy works. It's not just like there are rules that existed and government gets in the way. Government is not exogenous. It's not inherently efficiency reducing. It actually sets the rules of the game. And if we don't interrogate these assumptions that are taught to us as like often very, very true in all cases, then we're going to miss the institutions, the norms and the policies that actually shape how the economy works. And economics fundamentally is just messier than these assumptions, right? The assumption that you know, individuals are utility maximizing and super rational. The assumption that their preferences are just realized individual behaviors. The assumption that things can be Pareto optimal, but that even exists. Like they're elegant, but real life isn't that elegant. <laughs> and that these institutions, these norms and these rules, they exist to uphold power dynamics in the economy. And in an economy like the United States that was built on, on racism, for the purposes of extracting wealth and getting the rights to outputs from marginalized populations, then you have to, have to, have to talk about those institutions. Those institutions shaped our economy in a particular way, and it's at the disadvantage of an entire group of people. Yes, and I think there's a further disadvantage in the way the economy measures a person's worth as well, because it's primarily based on their contribution to the economy over anything else. Um, how does this valuation of a person's worth discriminate against already marginalized communities? Yes, I think it assumes, too, that an individual's value shapes the their contribution, too. Like, we assume that value equals wage, which is not always the case. And, in fact, institutions like unions play a big role in changing which jobs are good jobs and which jobs are valuable jobs. We often forget that. In the case of U.S. manufacturing, for instance, those jobs were not always good jobs. There were long hours, child labor, like they were not always good jobs, low wages. But the union movement, essentially an institution, you know, reshaped the dynamics between employer and employee in, in U.S. manufacturing, made those jobs good jobs. And yet we have jobs in the U.S. that are predominantly held by women and people of color, like home care work. That's one of the fastest growing industries in the U.S., that still has a relatively low wage. And yet with an aging population <laughs> that needs to be cared for, these highly skilled workers should be valued at a higher rate, but we haven't actually built the institutional power for them to get a higher wage. It's not just like wage equals value. On top of that, we often define skill as education level because it's easier to measure that way. But 
what about emotional intelligence? How do you actually how do you actually measure something like that? And that's a skill that is prominent among service workers, especially home care workers who are just not getting paid for the the emotional intelligence, the emotional skill that they bring to their work. You could try to codify it with things like occupational licensing or certifications of some sort, but then you end up excluding the same people because they don't have access to the resources to get the licensing. Again, it's like a quasi-education situation where if you have access, then you get access to the wage premium. But the reason you don't have access is not because you're not highly skilled. Right. And this creates this continuous cycle because for one to be considered valuable in the economy, you would require education, which is again less accessible to already marginalized communities. That is also correlated with intergenerational wealth, which as we've been talking about is highly racialized. During times like these, being non-racist is not enough. It's absolutely crucial that we are actively anti-racist. How is it possible to do so when we live in an environment where the economy is inherently racist? Yes, I think that's an important question. And it's it's hard to sit in those contradictions sometimes that you you don't like the water you're in fundamentally, but you're you have to swim in the water to keep surviving. I I like to think about anti-racism racism the way Dr. Ibrahim X. Gendi talks about it, which is that racism is a set of policies that are upheld by racist ideas, not the other way around, that people can have racist ideas and then it kind of just seeps into the policy because racist people made the policies. And so thinking about your own behavior is important, but thinking about your actions as a way of dismantling policies that are racist, I think is an even more important action to take. Like we can uphold racist systems in the way we treat others in our lack of awareness of others' struggles. You know, it is, there are interpersonal dimensions, but fundamentally we also have to dismantle these policies or implement policies that are explicitly anti-racist in order to get at the root cause. As we are coming to the end of the interview, is there anything additional that you would like to speak about or emphasize on? The only thing I would add is that keep studying economics. It's important. It's powerful. I do love economics, even though I am highly critical of a lot of approaches. Mm-hmm. I think elegant and helpful way to try to think about systems, because thinking about systems is hard. And I think the more people who are acknowledging that it's one way to think about systems and are valuing other fields and who are also acknowledging that, you know, some of the mainstream approaches are missing important systemic issues, you know, the better the overall profession will be. Ms. Campbell, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you, and I'm sure that this will be extremely eye-opening to all of our listeners. Thank you for your time, and have a great weekend. This episode of the Expanding Economics podcast is produced by Leora Schotzer and Shania Disa, with support from CKUT 90.3 FM on occupied Kanya Kahaka territory. Editing and original sound effects by Leora Schotzer, with editing assistance by Ben Bollard and Shania Disa. Music by Ross Graham and Blair Moon. You can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Expanding Economics. If you have any questions, comments, feedback, or topic requests for this economically precarious time, you can get in touch via email at expandingecon.com. MTL at rethinkeconomics.org. If you want to read more about our greater mission and are curious about heterodox economics, you can check out the website of our affiliated network, rethinkeconomics.org.